No, I'm going to say it differently this week. I invite you to come with me, some of you know, uh, into 1 Samuel chapter 7. Something we learned at the preaching course on, on Wednesday night. I invite you to come with me. And this was in my reading plan earlier in the week. And it was one of those moments where I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, stop and think about that. So I want to go through this chapter this morning for Samuel 7 and see what we can learn. Well, let me read just the first two verses and then give you a bit of background before we dive in. 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1 says, So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. What were you doing this time 20 years ago? Sometimes you read that in the Bible and it's just like, mm, 20 years, 20 years is a long time. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So let me give you a bit of the background here about the ark um, before we get into chapter 7. The ark had been captured by the Philistines. So if you go back, there's a wonderful story that starts about chapter 4, runs through 5 and 6 where Israel has some bad leadership. It's being led by a priest, Eli, who's not really in touch with God and running the the nation and the priesthood the way he should be. And he has two corrupt sons called Hopni and Phinehas, who had largely ignored God and manipulated and taken advantage of the people for their own gain. And whenever that happens, you've got to remember that Samuel is coming hot on the heel of Judges, And in the history of Israel, every time the people start to drift away from God and drift into idolatry and get a bit sort of complacent, an enemy nation will rise up and come and be a threat against God's people. We have it over and over again in Judges, and we have it here in 1 Samuel with some nasty lads called the Philistines. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, God's people, Israel, gather for battle at a place called Ebenezer. Now you've got to hold on to that because we'll come back to it. They gather for battle at Ebenezer. And what they think they can do is just take the ark of God onto the battlefield and that God will just show up, do his thing, wipe out their enemies and everything will be grand. They are presumptuous. They think God lives in a box and that they can just take the box out whenever they need God to do something. Sounds stupid, but sometimes we do that. Sometimes we'll ignore God for long, long periods of time. And then when the Philistines start to come up the road, suddenly we get the God box out. And we're like, come on, God, do your thing. Deliver me from this trouble. But God cannot be put in a box. He does not show up and help his people. And the Philistines inflict heavy losses on them. Eli dies, Hophni dies, Phinehas dies. And the ark of God is captured and put into the Philistine temple of the god Dagon. Dagon is the god of thunder. Hold that thought. We'll need it later. 
And as the ark is in there, you probably know the story. Dagon falls down during the night twice. His head and his hands are broken off. And the ark then, the Philistines don't want it. They send it on a bit of, it's like a parody of a victory tour. It goes around all the Philistine cities and causes carnage everywhere it goes. And then they finally send it back to a place in Israel called Beth Shemesh. But the people of Beth Shemesh have not seen the first Indiana Jones movie. And unlike me, they don't know that you should not open the ark. I don't know about the rest of you of a similar age to me who saw that movie when you were really young and they opened the ark at the end. I'm still scarred by some of the dodgy special effects that were, that were there when people's faces started melting and all that. But these guys in Beth Shemesh looked into the ark and there was carnage in Beth Shemesh and eventually they moved the ark to the house of Abinadab. Now imagine that. Imagine going to Abinadab's door. You know, what about you? We've got this box. Everywhere it goes, it causes carnage and death. Is it okay if we leave it in your place for, for, for a few weeks or whatever? And Abinadab accepts, somehow accepts the ark and his son is to look after it. And it sits there at the end of verse 2 or the start of verse 2. It sits there for 20 years. 20 years. Israel had made this awful, presumptuous mistake going into battle, bringing the ark as if God would just show up and work his magic. And for 20 years, nothing happens. Bad leadership, complacent people, 20 years. And we don't really know an awful lot about that 20-year period, but we know that by the end of it, Israel... According to the New American Standard Bible for for verse 2, Israel was mourning after the Lord. 20 years, nothing had happened. No word from God. The ark sitting in this guy's house, nothing happening. And by the end of that 20-year period, it says that they mourned after the Lord. They're starting to, to get fed up with the complacency, with the fact that that nothing is happening in Israel, that they have not heard from God. They're starting to get frustrated with the way life is going and they're mourning after God, but they so far are not doing anything about it. All right, it's like sitting and looking at the state of the world, the state of the community, the state of the church and having a wee moan and, and saying, you know, isn't this awful? They're starting to realize that things are not the way they should be, but they haven't done anything yet. But during that 20-year period, something else has been happening. And it's been happening to a man called Samuel, who last time we saw him, he hasn't figured in chapter 4, 5, or 6 when all this shenanigans were going on with the ark and the Philistines. The last time we saw Samuel was at the end of chapter 3. And when we met him in chapter 3, he was a boy. He was young. He was in the temple. And God spoke to him and God called him. And chapter 3 ends with this brief summary, which I think covers not just Samuel's childhood, but covers his whole life. It says at the end of chapter 3, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. What's our Samuel been up to for 20 years? We had this boy 
growing up in the temple. What's he been doing the whole time? It says in verse 21 of chapter 3, The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Samuel spent 20 years in the word of God, quietly, in isolation. Nobody else listening to him. No audience, no congregation. He was just faithfully in the word of God and God was just consistently revealing his character to Samuel. Samuel, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is how I operate. 20 years of of the word of God shaping him. Shaping him, changing him, helping him to understand the character of God. So we read in, in, you know, what, what happens to someone who has spent 20 years just steeped in the word of God, not, not conjuring up their own idea of what they would like God to be like, but just steeped in his word and allowing God to reveal who he is on his terms. And notice that as Samuel has, has had this revelation of God through the word, the outcome of that is, In verse 19 of chapter 3, the Lord let none of Samuel's words drop to the ground. Samuel is now speaking with authority. Because when you steep yourself in the word of God for 20 years like he's done, your words start to carry more weight. People start to listen. And Samuel's words now have authority. And at the start of chapter 4, before the, the, the debacle with the ark and the Philistines, Samuel's word, we read, came to all Israel. Again, I think that's a summary of his life. And then we're given this background picture in chapters 4, 5, and 6 about the ark and the Philistines. Maybe it takes a long time for God to do a deep work inside people. 20 years to bring Samuel to this point. 20 years to bring the nation to the point where they were mourning after God and they knew something had to change. Took a new generation to rise up because the previous generation had treated God lightly. God lives in this little golden box and we just bring him out whenever we want him. And God says, no, no. I need to raise up a new generation. 20 years passes before God will start to move again. And he's going to move through Samuel. Samuel is now going to speak to all of the Israelites. Let's look and see in chapter 7 what it is that he has to say. The problem as always is the Philistines. But God does, or Samuel does not focus on the Philistines. Samuel focuses on the heart. One of the wonderful things you're going to see in this passage is that Samuel never even looks at the Philistines. Never looks at them. The things that threaten you and threaten me that cause us to fix our gaze and our thinking and our intention. And we talked last week about anxiety. The things that that we turn over and over and over again in our minds. The enemy, whatever it may be that comes against us. Samuel doesn't even look at it. He has his focus completely somewhere else. And he goes after the hearts of God's people because he has seen their mourning. He has seen that they're starting to realize things are not right. And he basically says, is this real? Is this real? The way you're talking, 
Israel, is it real? Are you serious? Because he says, if you're serious, then you will return to the Lord with all of your heart. And there are a couple of things that you will do if you're serious. If this morning after the Lord is genuine, and this is a wholehearted thing on the, on, the, on the part of God's people, one of the things you will do is rid yourselves of foreign gods. What had happened in Israel was the culture around them had got into them. And it's one of the most difficult things as a Christian in the 21st century to not allow the culture around you to get into you. Because all around you, every day, everything is screaming I'm your first priority. I'm high priority. I'm really important. You've got to put your time into this. You've got to put your money into this. You've got to prioritize that. All of these things clamoring for attention from culture. You have to do this to be successful. You have to do that. You have to be this. You have to live here. You have to own that. You have to look like this. You've got to dress like that. Culture just screaming these things at us. Those are the foreign gods that then get into our hearts. The idols that creep in and start to influence our decisions, start to influence our lives almost without us realizing it. And for Israel at that time, foreign gods had got into their hearts. There's a theological term that's used for this. Sometimes it's called syncretism. Whenever the worship of Yahweh, Israel's God, becomes mixed with the worship of of other gods and other idols. So Samuel says, if you're serious, some things need to be put to death. Some things need to be, to be completely done away with. You cannot mix God with these foreign gods. And not only do they have to get rid of these foreign gods, but they have to commit themselves to God and serve him only. They've got to be wholehearted. There has to be a fresh fire, a fresh commitment, a fresh passion to the living God. Pentecost Sunday is a good day for something like that. A, a, a genuine analysis of the heart. Have I allowed the culture around me and what it deems as being important to seep into me and start to influence me? And Samuel says, no, put it away. Get rid of it and make this fresh commitment to the Lord to serve him only. It's similar to what Paul says in Colossians. He talks in Colossians 3 verse 9 about taking off the old. Change of clothes. Putting off the old self. And then in verse 10 about putting on the new self. There's that negative of getting rid of something. And that positive of then putting something on. And Israel responds to Samuel. Showing that the mourning in their hearts after God is real. It is genuine. And they respond to that first command of Samuel to put away the false gods that they've been worshipping. And then he gathers them for like a, an outward ceremony that he's going to carry out. He takes them to a place called Mizpah in 1 Samuel 7 and verse 5 to have this very public recommitment to God. Where they're going to nail their colors to the mast. And they have this bizarre little ceremony when they pour water on the ground. He assembles all the people at Mizpah. He's going to intercede with the Lord. And when they'd assembled, they drew water. And they poured it out in the ground before the Lord. There's only one other place 
in the Bible where something like that, very, very clearly like that happens. And it's buried in Lamentations. But it's a beautiful verse. And for, for a church that's, that's concerned about the community and concerned about young people in the community as well, this, this really struck me. Arise, this is Lamentations 2.19. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. So when, whenever the people gather and they have this ceremony of pouring out the water on the ground, they are pouring out their hearts before God. It's genuine. It is real. It is coming from the very core of who they are. And as you read on in that verse, lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. Okay. This town, every town. Young people fainting from hunger. Not, they're, not you know, they're not fainting because they haven't had any dinner. All right? But they're yearning for something and they're on the street corners empty hungry for something and and god says for the lives of those young people pour out your heart like water before me in my presence so that's one place where you have that that picture of water being poured out in the presence of god another place where something similar is mentioned is in second samuel 14 there's a wise woman from tekoa who comes to speak to the king and part of her speaking to the king involves the phrase like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered. Here's the thing about pouring water on the ground. You can't get it back. That, that's the simple, powerful statement that is being made when Samuel takes God's people to this place, Mizpah, and very publicly they get water and they pour it out on the ground. What they're saying is there is no return. Our commitment to the Lord is irrevocable. We, we are not going to turn back. We are wholeheartedly, completely pouring ourselves out before God. Making a, a commitment that cannot be reversed. No strings attached. Wholehearted. It's similar to the language of Philippians 2.7 where we read about Jesus. And again, you'll only get this in the more literal translations. We read that Jesus emptied himself. He humbled himself and he emptied himself. And when it says he emptied himself, it does not mean that he did not continue to be God, fully God. He did not empty himself of his divinity. He poured himself out as an offering before God. He became a man, still fully man, fully God, poured himself out, did not use his equality with God as something to be grasped, grasped for his own ends, but poured himself out in sacrifice to God. And Israel then does what Samuel's mummy did. In verse 6, they fasted and confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. Samuel leads the nation in this. Where did Samuel learn the power of fasting and prayer and confession before the Lord? He learned it from Hannah. You go back and read the early chapters of Samuel, you see a woman of fasting and a woman of prayer. Samuel learnt it from her and Samuel led the entire nation in this fasting and praying. And they repent. We have sinned against the Lord. 
No more excuses, no more blame shifting, no more putting responsibility on others. No more empty mourning before the Lord. They take responsibility for their actions and they repent. There is no salvation without repentance. And there is no ongoing Christian life of discipleship without ongoing repentance. Keeping short accounts with God. Confessing your sins. Repentance. These people repented. And again, we can see echoes of this elsewhere in Scripture. Samuel in the Old Testament is a picture of John the Baptist in the New Testament. John the Baptist came on the scene and he challenged the hearts of the people of God and how they were mixed with other things. And he called them to repent. That was his message. And he had this public commitment ceremony that involved water. You didn't pour it out on the ground. You went underneath it in John the Baptist's baptism ceremonies. A public display of irrevocable commitment. No turning back. And as Samuel will later anoint King David, John the Baptist anoints King Jesus. So you can see how the influence of this Old Testament prophet comes up again in the New Testament. And in a simple little note at the end of verse 6, it says, Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. And as I read that, I, I feel the scriptures are saying, that's what leadership looks like. Leadership of the people of God leads them in wholehearted commitment to God. It leads them in repentance. It leads them in doing away with the idols and the mixture that has crept into their hearts. Leadership of God's people leads God's people to God. First and foremost. That's what Christian leadership should be like. It is bringing people to God and focusing them on God. Now the good thing about this place, Mizpah, where they're out, is that it's really visible location where everyone around could observe what they were very publicly doing with their water ceremony. That was a good thing about Mizpah. The bad thing about Mizpah is that it was a very visible location where everyone could observe what they were doing, including the Philistines. <laughs> so, so, the, so Samuel chooses this spot where they can make a declaration of their commitment to God and everyone around can see it. And sure enough, the Philistines are also there and they see it. And you better believe that when you make a commitment to God, it will be tested immediately. Immediately. These people have gone through their ceremony. Yes, we repent. Yes, we confess our sins. Yes, we're wholeheartedly devoted to God and we'll pour out this water to show it. And immediately the Philistines are on the scene to, to test, is it real? If you pour out your heart and you pour out your life before God, you can expect hostility. It will arise. And the Philistines know there's something going on in Israel. They know the Israelites are starting to get their act together and get serious about God. Have you ever got your act together and got serious about God and then the Philistines are at the door about five minutes later? It's almost guaranteed. So the armies of the Philistines start to gather and the people of Israel start to get a bit concerned. They know they're in trouble and they, they're afraid. It says there at the end of verse 7, start of verse 8, they're afraid because of the Philistines. And they go to Samuel 
And what does Samuel do? Combat training? Does he take an inventory of all the weapons that they have? Who, who's skilled? Who's got experience in warfare? Does he, does he do that? Does he split them into ranks? Does he come up with a plan? No, Samuel leads them in worship and in prayer because that's what a godly leader does. He leads them in worship and in prayer. And as the Philistines, I don't know, I can see them. I can see the dust rising off the plain as they're heading towards Mizpah, which I think was slightly elevated above the plain. And they're coming along and, 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 they're, and the people of Israel are thinking there's so many things right now that we need to do. <laughs> because look what's coming in the distance. And Samuel says, no, we will worship and we will pray. And he, he makes this whole burnt offering Again, that word whole, nothing held back. Just like the water poured out in the ground, poured out, gone, can't get it back, can't reverse it. Same thing, this, this, this offering that was being made was complete. Nothing was being held back, nothing. Complete devotion, complete sacrifice unto God. And then we see how warfare works out for Samuel. And verse 10 is the verse that, that floored me on Tuesday morning. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, <clears throat> the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. I just love that. While Samuel was sacrificing, while Samuel was worshipping, while Samuel was praying, while Samuel was singing, while Samuel was sacrificing, the Lord thundered. <laughs> Samuel didn't look at the Philistines, didn't talk to the Philistines, didn't make a plan to deal with the Philistines. Samuel worshipped. Utter focus on God completely blinkered <laughs> didn't even look at them and i can see the israelites looking at samuel and then looking at the philistines getting closer and looking at samuel and back and forth thinking mate what is going on here but notice as samuel worships god steps in and does the fighting god thunders against the enemy who is the enemy it's the philistines who is their god dagon what's he the god of thunder Whoops. And I can imagine, as you read the story in the bigger context, the ark had been placed in Dagon's temple a few chapters earlier, and Dagon had fallen, and the ark brought out. And now as the Philistines come to do battle with God's people once more, I can almost, I can translate thunder for you, okay? I've got the gift of interpretation of thunder. As the thunder sounded that day, God was saying to the Philistines and to Dagon, do you remember me? Do you remember me? Do you remember that time you tried to take me captive and you tried to say that your God was more powerful than I am? Do you remember me? I'm back. <laughs> Thundering against the enemy. And again, I see Jesus, Colossians 2.15, says that when God had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus. 
Jesus on the cross was a whole burnt offering. It was a sacrifice complete. Complete. Once for all, nothing held back. Nothing. And at that place of the most complete sacrifice ever made, Jesus was not in conversation with the enemy. Jesus was offering up sacrifice, an act of devotion, an act of worship, an act of trust in God. And God thundered at the cross. God thundered against the enemy. The serpent's head crushed. Shockwaves going through the powers and principalities. The point I'm making, church, is the enemies, whatever those enemies may be, they may be people with demons behind them. They may be organizations. They may be mental health issues. They may be fears and concerns for the future. There may be so many different things. They are all Philistines. And Samuel doesn't even look at them. Samuel just gets utterly focused on God. Utterly focused on God. And God does the thundering. And God deals with the enemy. And God initiates the battle... But like any good father, once he starts doing something that's awesome and the kids come along and say, here, can we do that? He lets them in. Verse 11, the men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. God starts the battle, wins the battle, and allows his people to join the battle. And Samuel puts up a stone. And he calls it Ebenezer. And it invites the comparison between where we are in 1 Samuel 7 at Ebenezer and where they were in 1 Samuel 4 at Ebenezer. Because in 1 Samuel 4, they went off into battle and they started a battle themselves. And they brought the ark thinking it would help them. And God in 1 Samuel 4 basically said, I'm not helping you. (laughs) I didn't start this battle. And I'm not honoring your leadership. And they go to battle themselves presumptuously in 1 Samuel 4 and they utterly fail. God does not help them. But in 1 Samuel 7, they have learned how to do battle. They have learned how to seek God's help on God's terms. Out of commitment to him, devotion, repentance, worship, prayer, sacrifice. And notice who starts the battle in chapter 7. God starts it. And they follow him into it. Chapter 4, they started it thinking God would follow them into it. And he didn't show up. Samuel has led the people in what it means to be devoted to God. And what it means to have a wholehearted commitment to him. So he sets up this memorial at Ebenezer and reminds the people of what it means to truly receive God's help. And in verse 13, as we, as we draw to a close, we read the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israelite, Israel's territory. The enemy did not come back near Israel. Throughout Samuel's lifetime... The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. As long as Samuel was about, 
God kept the Philistines at bay because the people had a leader who led them to God. Didn't lead them to the Philistines with lots of skills and ideas and techniques and tactics. Led them to God in devotion and repentance and worship. And that which the enemy had stolen in verse 14, the towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. That that the enemy had stolen from people was restored again. Because God's people were focused in worship and devotion. And I want to remind you, Samuel had no direct engagement with the Philistines. In fact, if I'm right, and I don't know because I haven't read widely to make sure of this, but I don't know that Samuel ever had direct contact with the Philistines, ever. But they were subdued throughout his entire lifetime. Such was the man's devotion to God. Samuel rose up to lead a people who were mourning after Yahweh, but were not actually returning to him. And he leads them to forsake their idols, to commit to God, to be devoted, to be in worship, to be in prayer. He doesn't look at the enemy. And he lived that way consistently. It wasn't just a one-off high point. He consistently lived his entire life, that throughout his entire life, the Philistines never got the upper hand. And the greatest victory to be won over Philistines was, of course, David taking out Goliath, the Philistine champion. But you got no David if you don't have a Samuel who can hear God and pick the right son when he goes to Jesse's house to anoint a king. Even in the Goliath story, it's Samuel in the background. The one who has heard and obeyed what God has said. So I wonder, do we have any Samuels in the room? No, we have one. People who will rise up and lead a generation who can look around and say, there's something wrong. I know there's something wrong. I'm not quite doing anything about it. Someone who will rise up and call people to, to repent, call God's people to get serious about God. Someone who will allow God over a long period of time to reveal himself through his word. Some people want to read the Bible for a year or two and then speak with wisdom. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It takes a long time. A long time. For Samuel, 20 years. For Moses in the wilderness, 40 years. For Paul, when when Saul saw that bright light and he was converted, he went off for 14 years to figure everything out. It takes a while to be able to speak with authority. People who will model worship and prayerful devotion. That's what the church needs to see. Needs to see worship. Needs to see as leaders worship. Needs to see devotion and be called to those God-focused things. The church has had enough, I think, in the last few decades. It's had enough of strategists and leaders who run it like a company. Church needs leaders who will bring the people of God back to God in utter devotion and praise and worship. Father, we thank you for for this simple little message. We thank you, Lord, for the picture of, of Samuel 
worshipping while you are busy thundering. And I pray, God, that that picture would encourage us in our worship. Not only as we sing, but our daily worship, our daily devotion. That instead of getting up in the morning and thinking about the Philistines, that we would get focused on our great God and that you would do the thundering, Lord. Lord, help us. Help us as a church, Lord, to be completely and utterly obsessed with you. With you, Lord. To hear your word and to be steeped in it. Not to think presumptuously that a year or two or or a few books gives us authority, but to steep ourselves in the word of God. To seriously put away the idols that have seeped into our hearts, Lord. We want to see you move. We want to see the children who are hungry on the street corners, fainting from hunger. We want to see them restored and their lives restored to them, Lord. Help us to pour out like water before you. Pour out our hearts. Teach us to pray. And raise up Samuels in this place whose ministry and whose life will be lived to call people back to serious devotion so that we may see you move in the nation, Lord. Amen.